Open your Bibles to Psalm 30. So if you were expecting a standard Matthew story of the nativity, you're not going to get it, or early chapters of Luke, both of those passages, I would encourage you to open up and read together as a family or even on your own in meditation. But for me, I grew up, we went to church a lot, but essentially Christmas and Easter going family. So for me, I can't remember a Christmas Eve where we were not in church. And what are you seeing on Christmas Eve? Silent night, right? Do you sing Silent Night on any other night other than Christmas Eve or during December? Why? To me, it's just weird. I love Silent Night. Beautiful song. I love the imagery. I love the candles, the ambiance. It's emotional. I love tradition. I need cycles. I need a daily cycle. I need a weekly cycle, a monthly, a quarterly, an annual cycle. I'm an accountant outside of here, so that's, that's where my brain sits in. Like, I need structure. I need calendars. I need to tell myself what I'm going to do every single day. But in that, I need freedom. So even in, like, my interaction with God in traditions of here's a season where we as the body of Christ have chosen historically, whether it's our choice or our ancestors have chosen for us, there's a reason why we want to remember our Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth, sending his Son, the creator of the heavens and the earth, to abide in this human flesh. But there's a a purpose behind this nativity story. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 30. I promise that this is going to get into the nativity story, Um, but as I listen to the Lord on, especially when I sit in topical messages, you know, for most of you know, we just travel verse by verse through the word, but I really just try and sit with the Lord, like, what do you want me to share? Again, I I went to Matthew's gospel, I went to Luke's gospel, reading through the narratives, meditating on those things, and just trying to listen to the Lord of where, where he'd want us to be this evening, and that lands us in Psalm 130. So let's go ahead and read through this, and hopefully this will make all sense as we put a nice gift bow on it at the end. So Psalm 130 says, out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Back to the beginning, this is identified with a title. It says it's a song of ascents. Which, look at the first verse. It talks about being in the depths. The depths here is identified specifically with sin, but the idea of being in the depths, if you go and place yourself out in the middle of the ocean, what does the depths represent? It's chaos. 
So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth when you have the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. It's this idea that when God created this earth, it was chaotic in its foundation before he brought about order in his creation as he's in that in the in the, the creation narrative there in early Genesis. So that's this idea poetically that this psalmist is bringing out, is that he is in a life circumstance because of sin that is bringing about chaos and bringing about misery in his life. Now, in application, we can bring this, we can apply this in many different ways to our life. You can apply this to a circumstance that is bringing about misery in your life. You could bring this into somebody else's circumstance, the circumstance of the culture that looks and seems and is absolutely miserable, and there's a crying out to God. But as we sit in this psalm and this song of ascents, it is, it is there is a depth of position. You are deep. You are down in the mire. The, the ocean, is its waves are coming over you. You can feel like Jonah where you're in the belly of the fish. And he identifies that position like he is in hell as he is in that fish. He is down in the depths in the misery of his condition. Anybody ever been there? Again, this, this, is, this is a, there is an upward motion, an upward movement in this song. But in this initial, this, this psalm is broken into four easy paragraphs for us. And this first one, this is a cry for help. Where you have the psalmist is in misery, in mind, in body, in spirit. And there is a crying out to who? To Yahweh the creator of the heavens and the earth. And the cry is, Lord, and this, there's, there's only two imperatives in this, in this psalm. And the first one is, I, Lord, there's, there's this, I need you to hear me. I need you to see me. I need you to know me. I am in misery, and there is no way for me to get out of this position of misery. Ultimately, as we talk about sin, sin is that which brings about death. When you have committed a sin and you know it and you're sitting in that guilt and that agony and that misery, that's the emotion that the psalmist is bringing out for us. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to me. To the, to the voice of my pleading. And as we go through the rest of this, there's this Martin Luther, I, he, the sentence is, is that this is the state of a human soul that in hope is despairing, yet despair is hoping at the same time. There's this tension. And the definition of despair is the opposite of what hope is. Despair is the utter loss of hope, and hope is the absolute opposite of despair, and you feel that tension in this psalm. Have you ever been, again, this is, this is, there's an emotion to this that you need to imagine and that you need to place yourself into intentionally to, to again, to grab onto this cry and this plea that's rising up to the creator of the heavens and the earth. Look at the second one. So this, this first cry, this, uh, the section, again, is, is this cry for help from God, help out of misery. The second one focuses on forgiveness in verses 3 and 4. If you, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, should mark 
iniquities, literally, have a written record, pointed out, detailed, written down, if you should keep and watch over my iniquities. And again, this word for iniquity, it's, a, it's an Old Testament word for sin. But sin, it's not just the definition of what it is. It's the guilt that comes about it internally, emotionally, spiritually, that we all know when you have done something wrong and you have that emotional angst of guilt or shame, that's what this word iniquity brings about. Can you imagine standing before the being who has created you as he opens up a book of records of every single one of your iniquities? Can you imagine everything, not that you've just said and done, but thought? If you have anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. If you have lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. Because he is holy and he is perfect. Lord, if you marked my iniquities, if you keep a record of my iniquities or your iniquities, who can stand? And the idea of standing in the presence of the Lord, of Adonai, is this idea of persistence, of abiding. Who could go up before their creator with their sins from birth to death, listed out in all of their fullness and all of their detail? Who could persist in the presence of this holy being? And what's the answer? Nobody. And this is what the psalmist is bringing out. Yet, but what is there with God? Forgiveness. The idea of forgiveness is a legal pardoning. That what you were guilty of, that the guilt and the consequences and the punishment of it have been pardoned, have been removed. So the idea of forgiveness is that it's something that has been lifted up and taken away from you. The idea of your sins are no longer, through Jesus Christ, there is no longer a written record of your sins, but those things have been lifted up out of that page and removed. Other pictures in the New Te or both Old and New Testament talk about that God would blot out our sins. So think about ink. If there is a written record of all of your sins and all of your guilt and the consequences and the punishment of that, think about ink drops being blotted over those letters and those characters. What does that do? It destroys the written record. And then there's other images that he removes from us, our sins, our guilt, our punishment, our consequences, as far as the east is from the west. They never touch each other. He tears out that written record and it's thrown into the depths of the sea, never to be dredged up again. This is the imagery that we have. With Yahweh, there is forgiveness. There is pardon. What's the purpose? That God may be feared. Fear is a really weird word to me. I know how to explain it through there is an awesome respect and reverence for God's power, who he is and his being and his nature and care. What is he that he was able to just speak this creation into existence? I can't imagine. So these, this word carries with it an awe and a respect. 
But when you look at the, especially in the Greek word, it's, it's where we get phobia from. It's a fear. There is a shaking and a trembling in his presence. God is saying here, the psalmist is saying that in God forgiving us of our sins, it's to bring about in us a trembling in his presence, an awe, a respect, a love, but a real fear. So I don't want to discount the definition of the word. I fear disappointing my wife. I fear disappointing my parents, not because they're going to discipline me or they're going to punish me. I fear not being who they need me to be. Does that make sense? And it's not this, it's not a phobia. It's not like I'm afraid of snakes. I am afraid of snakes, thank you. But that's not my relationship with God. But there is, there is a trepidation. There ought to be a trepidation that when God forgives us of our sins, he's telling us that there is a restoration that he has brought about in that relationship. And in that relationship, there ought to be this holy, godly, passionate, and zealous fear in that relationship. Knowing that I'm going to disappoint him, you know, like theoretically, but how can you ever disappoint God when he has already removed your sins from you is this idea. It's awe, it's respect, it's love. So God, first, here I am in the de depths of my misery and the chaos of sin and crying out to God for help. This reality that the prayer and the supplication of seeking God for his forgiveness so that the relationship can be restored in unity again. Psalm 128.1 says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. So help, forgiveness. The next two verses focus on looking for God to intervene and this is where I'm picking up the title for the sermon of the King of Hope as we focus on Jesus. But I, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord. This is the idea of waiting and hoping. So in verse 5, you have wait mentioned twice. And at the end of verse 5, you have the word hope. Two different Hebrew words, both of them are synonymous for each other. So as you go and look how they're translated throughout the Hebrew and the Old Testament, they are translated as wait or hope, depending on the context, because they're conveying the same idea. But here the psalmist is crying out for help, pleading for God to forgive their sin, their iniquity, having this restoration of the relationship, and there's this tension, not only is there tension between despair and hope in this psalm, there's a tension between time. When you cry out to God for forgiveness, are you forgiven of your sins, yes or no? Instantly. There, there's a spiritual, instant reality to the relationship with your creator. When you cry out to him, you are forgiven in the name of his son, Jesus, the Messiah. Now, are you mentally free from the guilt? Are you physically free from the circumstance? 
from the consequence and or punishment of sin in your life? Not always immediate, is it? And again, you can, you can apply this in different areas of your life, different area of minis- misery that's not specifically sin, where you have cried out to the Lord and he has given you promises, but there's this, there's this tension of you have to wait. You have to wait on his timing. There's an idea of you have to wait for freedom. For some people, those shackles of sin, again, from the moment that you cry out to God for freedom, spiritually, you're free. Mentally, you may still feel really bound in your thought processes, in your behavior, in your word, in your actions. So there's this tension. So the psalmist, again, is, I will wait for the Lord. And here's the idea, is the Lord is out there, and I'm waiting for him to show up and intervene in my life and do what he's promised to do. I'm believing it and hoping and trusting spiritually that there is a restoration going on, but in the midst of the circumstance that I'm seeking freedom from, the sin that I'm seeking freedom from, there's this wait. I will wait. And it's a, it's a bold declaration of confident hope. So hope is defined as you have a confident expectation that God is who he says that he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. But there's this open-handed trust of, Lord, your timing, it's, it's your choice. But there is a, there is a declaration and proclamation that you need to, that needs to pour out of your soul in confidence. Because again, the psalmist is talking to God in this moment. He's not talking to you and me. And you need to be able to repeat these words to the Lord. Lord, I will wait for you to show up. My soul, my psyche, my emotions, I'm going to wait for you to show up and do what you promised to do. And how is this psalmist waiting? Where is he waiting positionally? Where are you positionally right now in life? You're in a building, right? You're not on the building. You're not beside the building. You are in this building at the moment. And he's saying that I am going to wait for you and hope for you in your word. And this is Genesis to Revelation. And this is something that you got to be in. So we have a document before us, Genesis to Revelation, right? Can you get, how do you get in here? Can you get into this physically? No, you can't shove yourself into words. But can you get into this emotionally? That's, that's what's being discussed. Spiritually, in Jesus Christ, through faith in him, fixed restored, redeemed, guilt is gone, shame is gone, consequences are gone. Emotionally, physically, and that timing, maybe not so much. So it's this, I am going to wait in this document, in these words. I'm going to invest my time. What does this mean? Why is he saying this? And again, this isn't just your favorite passages and the favorite verses that we like to write on our wall ornaments or shirts and that kind of stuff. But in his word from Genesis to Revelation, I'm going to hope in this document. Why? Because we're told that these are his words that he has given to us as a gift so that we would know who he is and that we would trust who he is. 
in all aspects of who he's manifested himself to be. And the, 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 uh, the weight that he puts onto this for all the kids that are in the room, who's excited to open up gifts tomorrow morning? Hey, Joy, are you paying attention? <laughs> None of the kids are paying attention. It's all right. That's why I call you out, Joy. Joy, are you looking forward to opening up presents tomorrow morning? Are mom and dad going to let you open up an early one tonight? Did you get a Christmas Eve gift? Nope. You have hard parents. So, Joy, I want you to help teach everybody in this room. Are you watching for tomorrow morning? Remember that emotion as a kid? You can't wait for Christmas morning to see what gifts you've been given. Remember that emotion? Now, you know, as an adult, as an old fart, I'm looking, I, like, I greatly enjoy more the giving because it's fun. But that's the emotion that the psalmist is bringing out. Just like I am waiting, the sun as we are in this room is going to set in the west as this earth is rotating to the east. We have a confident hope that the light of the sun is going to rise tomorrow. And what are we told? His mercies are new when? Every morning. You can't do anything about the past. When do you live with the Lord? Right now, right in this moment. And just as we have a confident hope that tomorrow morning that light is going to come up, the focus is on the gift giver. It's not on the gift, but we have a confidence that there is coming a day when this source of light, there is no longer going to be a sun or a moon or stars in the eternal heaven. Why? Because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are the light thereof. Just like the watchman is watching for the morning light to come up, that's how my soul is waiting and longing for my Lord, for my Creator, for my Savior, my Redeemer, my friend, my provider. I can't wait to see with all of the fullness of the gifts of senses that He is going to give to us what a wonder that He is. Do you feel the emotion? God, help me. God, forgive me. God, come and intervene into my circumstances. I'm crying out to you because I know you're my help. I'm asking for your forgiveness because I know that you forgive. I'm telling you that I'm going to wait for your timing because I know that you will do what you want to do in your timing. And then the final last two verses are an encouragement. So he's no longer talking to his creator. He's talking to you and me, nation of Israel. Oh, Israel, wait. And again, wait, hope, synonymous words in context. Hope in Yahweh. Why? For with the Lord, for with Yahweh, there is mercy. We talked about this. Um, I've been... This is the Hebrew word has said it comes up a couple hundred times in the Old Testament. This is a word that God uses to define himself and it's, it's, it's emphasis, it's, it's meaning is it's his loyal, steadfast and faithful love. Comes up, it's translated as mercy more often than not in the Old Testament. But the, the, trend, the true deep translation of it is here's God's character. 
He loves you faithfully. He loves you steadfastly. He loves you passionately. With him is mercy. So you are not, you're waiting for the Lord to show up, right? But at the same time, you're, you're hoping in him, in his nature, in his character, positionally in him. For why? For with him, there is mercy. With him, there is abundant. There is much redemption, this word for redemption, it's, it's this whole idea that he makes a distinction between a soul who cries out to him like this psalmist is crying out to him versus a soul that does not. He delivers the one out of trouble who cries out to him for help. He forgives the one who cries out to him for forgiveness. He intervenes in the life of the one who calls out for intervention. With him, there is an abundance of deliverance from trouble. He shall redeem, this, this redemption word is he shall buy out, he shall redeem Israel, notice, from all his iniquities, from all his sins. All right. Now, how do you connect this to Jesus? Look at, what we, look, at, look at the words. If you have your Bible open, look at the words. Out of this depth, out of this misery, out of this chaos, I'm calling out to the creator of the heavens and the earth for help. How do you know that he hears you? How do you know that he sees you? How do you know that he even cares about you? The psalmist is making this declaration that with Yahweh, there is forgiveness. How do you, why? So why does he forgive one person of their sins and another person's sins are maintained? They're marked. They're listed out. All of them. All shame all the consequences of it, all the punishment of it. What reason does the psalmist have to confidently declare this? I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to wait and hope in your words. Why, why should we trust the words that are in this document at all? What reasons do you have? Just because somebody told you so? Do you have any life experience in it? What reason does the psalmist have to encourage anybody else to do what he is doing? God, help me, forgive me, and I'm going to wait for you to intervene in my life. And I'm going to encourage other human beings to do the exact same thing. Why? How? And to me, this is where we start talking about the king of hope, Jesus. When you sit in with Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, and the woman that he is betrothed to in marriage is found with child, we have this testimony that Joseph is seeking to put her away quietly, do this legal divorce in the culture and its system that's going on. 
And as he's meditating on these things, as he's emotionally churning in his own mind and soul in this damaged relationship from his perspective, what does Yahweh do for Joseph? He intervenes in Joseph's life. He intervenes in a way where he sends an angel to him in a vision, in a dream at night. And what does he tell Joseph to do? Gives him some facts. Gives him his word. Joseph. The child that is in Mary's womb is not of a natural origin. She is with child of the Holy Spirit by a very specific gift, a very specific act of the being who created the heavens and the earth is intentionally doing something. Don't be afraid to take her to yourself as wife because she is going to birth a son And this son, you are going to name Jesus. What does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean, church? Savior. Savior. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. You will call his name Jesus. This babe, you're going to call his name Jesus. Why? Because he is going to save his people from their sins. This is why we sit in the word. Have any of you been in the misery of sin? The misery of repetition? The misery of Groundhog Day? The misery of the definitions of evolution? The misery of the culture? The misery of your life experience? The misery of your family dynamics? There's there's chaos everywhere we look. And many people say that faith in Jesus as Savior is just a mental crutch. You're only latching on to this idea of God because you're weak-minded and you need a crutch. You need help for you to live in this miserable existence that we call life in humanity. Is this all there is? We sit in his word because in the beginning, we see this astounding creator and power and design. And when we lift up our eyes and we look out in the world, what do you see? I see an incredible design. I see incredible beauty, intention. I also see incredible brokenness. Do you? I see a lot of chaos. I see chaos in nature. I see chaos in humanity. I interact in that chaos in, in my own life, in my own soul and mind, in the lives of others as I seek to encourage them just as the psalmist is encouraging. We sit in not just the, the incredible declaration of what it is that God did in creation and making man and woman, male and female, in his image, but immediately we sit in the brokenness of it and what sin is. What, what broke that relationship, that design, that the, the idea that humanity was to image their creator? And this is all of the definitions of, of sin and guilt, the consequences of it, the punishment of it. We sit for millennia of human history and we watch this. But when you sit in this word, 
what's the good news from beginning to end of his word? God is good. He is forgiving. He is faithful. He is gracious. He is loyal. He is, his intention before creation was this provision because he knew the brokenness that was going to occur. And my, my own mind, the only way I, I am able to reason this out is this is the only way it was possible for this being to make a creature in his image and to keep that image for all eternity was not only to make the creature, but it was to become like the creature, to create unity. So when we sit and we talk about this declaration that there was a baby born, come and adore him on this, I guarantee not silent night as Mary was birthing Yeshua, God is salvation into this world in a barn. The message that's being conveyed to us is here is how. And here's the why and all the expression of that. Here is where your hope and your help comes from. Here is the child that is going to save you from your sins. So all of history, Israel is sitting in this sacrificial system of an animal atoning for sin. There is a necessary death and shedding of blood for the removal of sin from me and my sins being placed on a, on a substitutionary sacrifice is the imagery of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. All of it in its imagery, in its shadow, is pointing to the reality of the Creator stepping out of His temple, out of His throne, and unclothing His divinity from Himself to become like His creation for the sole purpose of having all of the sins of humanity laid upon Him as He died on the cross. And the singular evidence that that event is true is what we celebrate at Easter. It's the resurrection. And all of it promised, all of it predicted, all of it witnessed, so that in this psalm that we just sang out, which I, I know every single one of you knows the shame, the punishment, the consequences of your own personal sins. Time can take away some of that emotion, but behavior doesn't take away the stain. We're told that our God, yeah, we're waiting for him to show up, but the reality is, again, he's always here. He sees everything. And there is a written record of everything in humanity from beginning to end. And the only exception to that is the sins of those who cry out to Jesus as Savior. That is the only written record removed. Is that a gift? Oh, buddy. I wouldn't want to stand before any of you with 1% of my sins listed out. 
And the, the, the idea that every single human soul will stand before their, their creator in complete revelation. We're told the gift that we have in Christ through faith in him, all of it has been removed. So the encouragement, again, as we, as we sit here in a, in a cultural tradition of Christmas, of this nativity story, in your traditions, I, I hope you have traditions because they're really good. We need to have cycles. We need to have reminders. We need to be kept in the truth of what this story is all about. But may Jesus Christ be your hope. May he be your sovereign, your king of that hope. May you, if you do not know and understand the depth of the gift that has been handed to you in Jesus Christ, I would ask you to plead with this psalmist to cry out to the Lord, God, show me. Help me to understand. Help me to know. Help me to remember. Have any of you in this room, has the gospel gotten boring to you at all? Have any of you ever gotten sick or just, it just passes over your, your head of, yeah, Jesus is love? Of course, he loves everybody. Of course he was born as a baby in a manger. I've heard that tradition, you know, every year for however long you've been alive. Is it any of those, any of those truths ever get boring to you? Is your heart calloused? towards God because of the behavior of his followers. You ever sit in any of these emotions? I do almost every single day because I read a lot and I really read a lot of the stupid things that people do. And then I do a whole bunch of stupid things. And then I'm looking to the Lord, crying out to him for help every day, for forgiveness, recognizing the gift that's been given. Lord, I'm waiting for you to intervene with this confident hope. And Lord, whatever opportunity that you give to me, I'm, in, I'm going to encourage every single soul to turn to you in spirit and in truth, to worship you, to follow you, to abide in you, because therein is life, an abundant life. Amen?